Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 22nd, 2015. We will be continuing with our ramblings through Genesis, although I've taken an excursion. You'll notice the last two ones we were in Galatians. Today we're going to be in Romans. It all connects to Abraham. You've got to understand how this man is declared righteous. Mucho importante. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being set out there, and we actually take the time to put the Bible back into context to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, uh, self-styled prophets and prophetesses, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says in context. Is it sound biblical doctrine? Can we find it, you know, as part of historic Christian orthodoxy and biblical Christianity, or is it something else? That's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. And part of the task in doing this requires us to actually spend some time hearing what it sounds like to do exegesis, to dig deep into a passage, this idea of Scripture interpreting Scripture. So that's all part of, uh, if you would, the lesson of learning biblical discernment so that you can identify truth, error, sound exegesis versus narcissism, which is loving the loving of yourself and reading it into Scripture, you know, things like that. So uh, we're continuing with, like I said, rambling through Genesis, although we're going to be in uh, Romans 3 and 4 today to help us understand the story of Abraham. So grab a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 3, and we will go ahead and get started. Here we go. We're working our way through a part of Romans in helping us understand Genesis. All right, let's pray. Holy, most merciful God, you have taught us the way of your commandments. We implore you to pour out your grace into our hearts, cause it to bear fruit in us, that being ever mindful of your mercies and your laws, we may always be directed to your will and daily increase in love toward you and toward one another. Enable us to resist all evil, to live a godly life. Help us to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to walk in his steps until we shall possess the kingdom that he has prepared for us in heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, we are doing a little bit of New Testament work to help us understand how to understand Genesis. If you remember, we talk about the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. 
And we, the last two Sunday school class, we worked our way through the book of Galatians for the very express purpose of rightly understanding the proper distinction between law and gospel and seeing in the book of Galatians that there was a way in which Galatians interprets the book of Genesis when it comes to Hagar and Sarah. Remember? Hagar is the slave woman. We'll get to that in the book of Genesis. And her children are actually likened to those who are on Mount Sinai. They are enslaved under sin. We are the children of the free woman, Sarah, and the reason why is because she is the one who bore the son of the promise. There's a slave versus freedom, promise versus commandment kind of thing going on in the book of Galatians. And in Romans, there is a very explicit portion of Romans that talks about how to rightly understand the book of Genesis, and it's in chapter 4. But my three rules for sound biblical exegesis must stay in place, and they are context, context, and context. Just like in real estate, you know, it's all about location, location, location. Same thing in Scripture. It's context, context, context. So we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, and in order to get the context going into 4 so that we can see how the book of Romans deals with Abraham. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Verse 9. No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. To deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what we would consider a very flattering description of humanity. Right? How many good people are there on the planet? None. None. There's only one exception to this, and that's Christ. He's the sinless one. We ain't. So this describes our condition prior to our regeneration, and it also describes the, the reason why we have a sinful nature. You know, if this kind of plays into that and what it does. It chases after sin. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is kind of a, another function of the law, if you would. The purpose of the law is to shut you up. It's, that's the rude way of putting it. But the, the idea is, is that you look at God's law and you sit there and go, but yet, yeah, but be quiet. But, 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 no, be quiet. You're guilty. That's what it does. It silences you. It shuts your mouth and makes you realize that you are guilty before God. So this, is, this falls into the second use of the law. The second use of the law is that use by which our sins are shown for what they are. Okay? So God's law... Shuts every mouth. Whole world is held accountable to God. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Justified is that highfalutin word, dikaio. It means to be declared righteous. It's that court term again where the judge slams the gavel down and rather than saying not guilty is what they would say here. In the ancient context, he would say righteous. You're declared righteous by a judge. This is a forensic act on the part of the judge. So by works of the law, no human being, absolutely not one person, 
from Adam all the way to the last person who draws their breath on the very last day, not one single person will be declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law. Not one. Uh huh. Yeah, well, and, and you notice the reaction. Don't tell us that. It's like, ah, you know, we, we think we're keeping the Ten Commandments. If you really, somebody, uh, a lot of people fool themselves into thinking that they're keeping it. And part of the reason why is because you look at the second table of the law. There's two tables of the law. The first table deals with our relationship with God. second table deals with our relationship with each other. So you look at the second table of the law, and you sit there and go, haven't killed anybody. Yeah, you know. And then you sit there and go, haven't committed adultery. I'm doing all right. I haven't stolen. At least no one's caught. caught. You know, right? Yeah. And then, you know, he started singing. And then, you know, I, I am kind of jealous of that person's clothes or car or tractor or whatever. It, it's not that bad. You know, so you, you start to, you know, so you start looking at the second table and you're sitting there going, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some of this already. I must be okay. Right? And the thing is, is that it's like, you got to understand something. That's second table. And to some extent, our reason can perform the commandments of the second table. And you don't even have to be a Christian to, you know, excel in these good works. There's plenty of people who've done some amazing things for other people who have not been believers. And so you sit there, and if, you're, if your judge is, if your standard's just second table, well then, you know, there's a lot of people who are better at the second table than I am. I mean, Mormons are better at it as a whole than most evangelicals or Lutherans, right? <clears throat> First table. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength? I, I don't know. I, I can't fathom that. Yeah, I can't either. It means constantly. Yeah, constantly. Without, that means... It means you never, you never despise hearing God's word. You're never going, oh, I don't want to go to church. Every morning when you wake up, the first thing you do is thank God and pray. Do you do this? I don't do this. So now here's the other thing. Every time you transgress any of the commandments of the second table, that shows definitively and objectively you do not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the idea is, is that when we talk about people being born dead in trespasses and sins, it's important for us to say what that means. Okay, It does not mean that a person who is an unbeliever is incapable of doing good to neighbor. It's not what we're saying. Okay, but because we all have a sinful nature, it's kind of like driving a car where one of the tires is deflated, you know? And it, it always is pulling, you know, to one side, in, in, or the alignment's off. It's always pulling. So there's always that pull of sin. The, everybody has that pull. And some people are self-disciplined to the point where they can kind of keep the car in the center of the road. And compared to other people on the planet, they are pretty good people. So we're not saying that somebody who's a sinner by nature can't do good when it comes to how we treat each other. But what we are saying is, is that somebody who's more dead in trespasses and sins cannot have true fear, true love, true trust in God. Their relationship with God is totally severed, and there's nothing they can do to restore the relationship.
they can't do it. God has to do it, and God does it for them. So, you know, it's important that we kind of keep these distinctives so that we don't... Because if you don't rightly understand it, it's really easy to kind of start mingling the two. And where, where Christianity gets off the rails is when the preaching is only for obedience to the second table. Those are very easy, low-hanging fruit kind of sermons, and we all have the law written on our heart. But the reality is, is the pastor, the job of a pastor is to preach for faith. Faith and repentance, trust in Christ, and then the good works flow from that faith. Because somebody who is a pagan can make progress on second table without believing. That does not make them a Christian. It's only penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins that justifies, and that's given as a gift by God. So the pastor has to preach law and gospel correctly and has to preach in such a way that faith has something to cling on to, which is one of the reasons why, if you listen to my sermons, I always bring the gospel in, always point you back to the objective means of grace in the supper and baptism, in the absolution, and things that your faith can hang on to because those are sure and certain promises. Does that make sense? And then from there... Your faith given to you as a gift from God, that begins to work in a way where you make progress in loving God and loving neighbor. Does that make sense? It's the complete package, not a pseudo package just based on second table. We can all make progress in that. That's what New Year's resolutions are for. Huh? If you don't have the first, the second is not going to get you anywhere. It, correct. You, you're not justified before God by works of the law. You're not. So it doesn't matter how good you are, second table, you are not declared righteous by that. And the reality is this. You can't even begin to have true fear, true love, true faith in God unless God gives that to you as a gift through the preaching of the gospel. That's a gift given. Does that make sense? And when you have faith... Faith then fulfills, literally, because Christ has done it for us, the first table of the law and the second table of the law for us, so we no longer stand condemned. The law cannot continue to accuse you in the way that Satan does and says, to hell with him, he's sinned, he's guilty, she's guilty, she's guilty. Well, yeah, of course, but that sin is bled and died for by Christ. Why does it always seem so simple once you and so hard because you can't figure this out on your own. It has to be revealed to you. And it's revealed in a way you can understand it. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That means to be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God. That is a loaded statement. The righteousness of God. The diakasune tutheu is what it says in Greek. Whose righteousness is it? Ah, right. Now, remember I, in the sermon today, I talked about those white garments, that wedding gown. And yes, all the men were looking at me like, how do you know so much about wedding dresses? Kind of sad. But um, yeah, clearly, they don't watch enough TV. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, the, the righteousness of God, so this is God's righteousness, has been manifested, watch this, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember, transfiguration, there's Elijah, there's Moses, the law and the prophets. Okay, They're bearing witness to Christ. They disappear and it's Christ only who's left. And the voice says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. 
So now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody. And are justified, declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Kind of a big word there. You can almost say atonement. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an atoning sacrifice that's being referred to here. And uh, a propitiation kind of has this idea that um, there's wrath, you know, like a laser beam focused on the person who's responsible for that wrath. And propitiation has kind of this in, in, way of looking at it where that wrath is ricocheted or averted or, or put onto something else. So Christ is our propitiation. God looked at us in our sin, and we were objects of his wrath. Christ takes our sin upon himself, our filthy garments, and then God literally exhausts his wrath on Jesus. And that's what Jesus was going through. You think about the crucifixion. Crucifixion is probably the most painful way for a human being to die. It was an exquisite form of torture, really fine-tuned by the Romans to make it just a very extremely terrible way to die and psychologically sends a message to everybody out there under Roman, the Roman thumb. But as bad as crucifixion was, that's not Jesus' great suffering. His great suffering really comes when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For, that, for the Father to turn away from Jesus is that great suffering. And so you think about this. Jesus being the eternal Son of God, He is an infinite, eternal being. And although He has human flesh, there He is doing something that is unthinkable that God could do. He's suffering. And so literally, in the six hours that He's on the cross... All of the wrath of God for every sin that was ever committed is literally put on this infinite, eternal being. And I don't know how the math works, but six hours was enough for him to die for the billions and billions of human beings and all of the sins that they've committed from Adam and Eve all the way to the last person who ever lived. You know, it's like those like multiplication factors when... when the infinitude of God is in the equation. And his suffering then, physically, yes, is terrible, but even more so the fact that he's got that break with the Father where, the fa- where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's true suffering on a level we can't understand. So the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier, the one who justifies, the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? Now, if you're saved completely by a gift of God, nothing that you've earned or done, what happens to boasting? Gone. There's nothing to boast about. So it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Well, he's not. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. This is why the idea then is is that the person who preaches that your right standing before God is is established or maintained by your keeping of the second table, it's it's, it's like a card shark playing with half a deck. The game is rigged, and they're not telling you the truth. But the person who preaches law and gospel correctly, law to convict of sins, gospel to comfort, and faith clings to those promises, and you're declared righteous by faith, then, because you are regenerate and you have been set free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil, you now can actually love God and love neighbor and make progress in that, in its true progress. And the motivation isn't for yourself. It truly is for the sake of your neighbor. If you believe that your right standing before God is kept or maintained by your keeping of the law, then every good work you're doing is not for your neighbor. It's for yourself. You see? So it's only by grace through faith then that we uphold the law and uphold the law the way it was intended to be upheld. All from pure motivation of love towards neighbor, not because of love for self. Chapter 4. Now we get to Abraham. So what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And this is from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. How many of you guys have employees? Do you have any employees, Roger? None? Try not to? Now, how many of you have been an employee? Right? I've been an employee. And if you're an employee, when you come to work and you put your card in the time clock, and it goes ka-chunk, and it puts a little stamp on it, right? I'm old, old school here, you know. You, now, now you got the things where you go beep. You know, but anyway, it goes ka-chunk, and then you put it on the thing, and you go and you do your work. Okay? And then it's time for lunch. You take your card, you stick it in the machine, ka-chunk, put it out, and you go out to lunch. Right? That's, that's your time, Right? So then you come back from lunch, you tie clock in, ka-chunk, and you go do your work. After several hours pass, you're finished, you come out, ka-chunk, and then you hand it to the HR person after whatever the time period is to, you know, for paycheck. Is the check that you receive from your employer a gift or a wage? Wage. So you can't sit there and say, oh, my employer is the most generous person in the whole world. You're not going to believe this. I... I, I, every week I show up and I work 40 hours and I get this thing called a paycheck. It's the amazing thing ever, right? It's not a gift. It's a wage, right? Yeah, you earned it. So think of it this way then. This is where Scripture is going with this. And notice Abraham is helping us understand this. Is that the person who thinks that their right standing before God is based upon their law keeping, is their salvation a gift or a wage? Wage, But salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. It is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. 
If it's a gift, it's not a wage. If you're trying to earn it or maintain it by your works, it ceases to be gift and it becomes wage. And so this is where Abraham comes in then. So what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, of, uh, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And verse 5, this is the one most explosive verse during the time of the Reformation. The one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Yeah, you're right. But we can't even believe on our own. That's the funny part. What the gospel demands, the gospel demands belief and faith. What the gospel demands, it gives. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10 says, right? So what the gospel demands, it gives as a gift. The gospel says, believe and you'll be saved. And you go, but I can't. And the gospel says, okay, no problem. Here's your belief. And it gives it to you so that you can believe. All gift. So then who gets all the glory? God. How much glory do you get? None. Right? You ever read that passage in the book of Revelation where, you know, the elders take their crowns and they throw it before the Lord, right? You know, this casting crowns theme, right? And it's like, Jesus, you're the one who did all this, not me. Why do I get a crown? (laughs) <laughs> right? I don't, or I don't, this doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, and they cast their crowns before the Lord. You alone are worthy to receive honor and glory and power and might. He's done it all for us. And faith receives these, and faith itself is even given as a gift. So that your salvation from beginning to end is all the work of God. He's the one who washes you. He's the one who bleeds and dies for you. He's the one who keeps the law perfectly in your stead. He clothes you in his righteousness, the righteousness of God. All of this is gift, and it, we just receive it. So the one who doesn't work, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do for your salvation? I'm going to basically sit up on the couch, put my legs up, turn on the television you know, with the remote. The one who does not work, right? I refuse to work for my salvation, so I'm going to kick up my legs and relax. Who, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And you say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. I'm trying so hard. Stop. <laughs> Come sit down relax. It's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. So just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts, right, uh, counts righteousness apart from works, he says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count, not count his sin. Ah, oh, wow. You mean, seriously? That sin too? Yeah, that sin too. Yeah, but, but that one, no, no, that's sin too. You know, Janet, can I tell on you? Can I tell on you about yesterday? Okay. I, I, I want to get your permission. Yesterday at the Kentucky Fried Chicken Club, that's what Barb calls it. Um, KLCW. Yeah. Yeah. 
Janet had a question about Hitler. Janet had a question about Hitler. And, it, and it's not an uncommon type question. You know? And basically the question goes along, so what you're saying is that if Hitler repented and believed in Christ before he pulled the trigger, then he's going to be in heaven. And it, it doesn't seem right. No, it, it, well, of course it doesn't seem right. But see, salvation is a grift by God. Now, here's the question. How many sins did Jesus not die for? <laughs> to me, sin is sin. Sin is sin, yeah? Yeah? Sin is sin. I mean, there's... It's just a plain sin is sin. Yeah? But here's the question. How many sins did Christ not die for? He died for all the sins, all of them, right? Now, and so here's kind of the follow-up question. And this is where it gets, it, it, the scandal of the cross is this, is that if you're not sure whether or not Hitler can be forgiven, then how do you know you can be forgiven? That bothers me, so never mind. Okay. And it was, the question was designed, the yeah. statement was designed to bother you. Yeah, I know. You know, it was a harassing question on purpose. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture as I ramble my way through Genesis via the Book of Romans. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Presents Church Day Select. And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage here proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Uh, do you know why I called you in here today? Am I in trouble? Oh, no, 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 of course not. We're just worried about you. Is this about my tithes? You know, I- I'm so sorry. I forgot the $5. Well, you hate me now, don't you? Oh, no. No, you've been very good about meeting your tithe quota. Besides, if this had been about your tithes, we would have sent someone to your house. I just wanted to discuss your attitude because some of the elders have started to talk about it. My Attitude? Oh, yes, your attitude. You see, we're all about our Congress having audacious faith, but we've noticed that you seem to be having difficulty being audacious during services. Um, are you talking about the Holy Ghost, Toki Pokey? Is I not dancing right? You know, I, I tried practicing at home, but when I put my whole self in, I fell over and injured Fluffles. Who is Fluffles? 
Well, uh, he's my cat, and after I fell down, I didn't know if he was breathing. Okay, we we seen you straight from the top. Look, you don't have to dance during the services, but you can at least start singing. I mean, what's the point of having jumbo screens with sing-along lyrics if people aren't being audacious and using them? When I was younger, I had this bird, and I decided to take it outside with me and start singing to it, and a hawk dove down and snatched Muffin from my finger. Oh, dear. Uh, I'm so sorry about Muffin, but let's get back to the present point. If you don't want to sing or dance during the service, then I guess we'll let you have make that choice. But if nothing else, won't you please be more audacious and just do the hand motions? Well, last year, I had my gerbil outside and his hamster ball, and... This interview is not going as expected. Well, I was practicing hand motions, and my bracelet caught a glare in a driver's eye, and the car swerved, and it hit Mr. Cuddles. He flew into the mouth of an octopus living in the sewer. Apparently, he didn't taste very good, so he spit him back up into the street where my neighbor ran him over with his lawnmower, which broke the hamster ball, but not Mr. Cuddles. So then Mr. Cuddles escaped, and then a dog thought Mr. Cuddles was a chew toy, so he chewed on him. But Mr. Cuddles didn't like that, so he survived, and I got him back. Well, that's finally something positive. I bet you anything that Mr. Cuddles would love for you to be more audacious in church. Well, but he died a week later from rabies that he got from the octopus. <laughs> well, I think we'll have to schedule a second meeting for you sometime in the next... Never. I mean month. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385.
the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never really takes any time to work through the Bible, you know? Kind of an important thing if you're going to be a disciple. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings through Genesis via the Book of Romans. Here we go. Stephen. Isn't it, isn't it like we look at the civil laws we keep at uh, the time? Yeah. Like, hey, we work so hard to keep all the civil laws. So uh, now that our salvation is just given to us, why should we be given to other people when they don't keep any of the civil law? See, you I know, that, that's what we're thinking. Like, we're, we're, our sinful nature is grasping onto the fact, oh, we do all these great things in the civil <laughs> law uh-huh. on the earth. Yeah. We don't think about what Christ has done for everyone, you know, on the earth. Yeah. I, well, and see, that's kind of the thing. Yeah, let, let, Christina, real quick. And then the car of the son again. Yeah. The son who was at home, he never, you know, yeah. squandered. He's angry at his younger brother. He's like, why did you forgive him? Yeah. Why are you treating That is a great point. Let's take a look at that. It's Luke chapter 15. Let's look at that real quick. The prodigal son, the, you know, the, the prodigal father, if you would, or the father of the prodigal had two sons, right? Let's take a look at what happened, because we read the part where the son comes back, right? I'll start at verse 18. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He rose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly bring the best robe. There's that theology of clothing, right? Put it on him, put on a ring on his hand and shoes and his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Now, if you want to know where Jesus is in the story, he's the fatted calf. (laughs) He's the one who dies, right? Yeah? I think that's a good way to look at it. So let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son, and watch this. Who's really the prodigal now? His older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So this, by the way, in a shame culture or an honor culture, This is something we don't catch here in the United States. If you've ever spent time in an Oriental uh, culture, 
Honor is a big deal. And the Middle East at this time is an honor culture. And what the son is doing is dishonoring his father egregiously. Culturally, people who grow up on honor cultures know exactly what signal is being sent here, and it's a really bad one. So he said to him, uh, so he called one of his servants and asked him, what does this mean? Oh, verse 28. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice the second brother. I did these things, and you didn't give me this. Which brother has faith and is forgiven, and which brother thinks that all of his good works are earning him something as a wage? That second brother, yeah. So the scandal of the cross says this. Prostitutes, tax collectors, drug users. Mass murderers. Mass murderers. Yeah. All of them can and should be forgiven. Christ has not excluded any of them. And who did Jesus hang out with? All of those people. Sinners, right? Right? Jesus was... Oh, the, the Pharisees, he's a friend of sinners. <laughs> right? Do you believe that God uh, testifies to people while they're in a coma? It doesn't say in Scripture, so I can't speculate. Now, this is, now, now you, kind of, you come up to where the limitations of my office are. Okay, I'm not God, but I'm in an office created by God. I'm a pastor. So I'm only given certain things to do, and I'm only given certain messages. I only have Scripture and the sacraments. That's it. That's all I got. And I can't go beyond it. But see, the thing is, is that God can do whatever He wants. I just am not allowed to speculate and give you an answer beyond what I've been given. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the way you have to look at it. Do I know of any way in which God works apart from His Word and sacraments? No, I don't. But does that mean that God can't? Of course not. God is omnipotent. He's, he can do whatever He wants. All, right? All I know is that I'm given this message with, this, with these parameters, so there's nothing in Scripture that tells me if God works in comas and things like that. But that doesn't say He doesn't. No, it hasn't. And the issue is, is that... Here's the issue is, is that... Lutheran theology understands that God works through means. God works through the preaching of His Word. God works through water. God works through bread. God works through wine. God works through my voice. When I speak words, I'm giving a living voice to things. These are the means by which God normatively works. And we're not comfortable as Lutherans, and that's kind of an understatement, to say that God works without means. Does that make sense? So because I, you know, I don't know the means by which, you know, any other means other than, you know, those things that I've, I've listed that God works in our, in our time-space continuum, because I know He does because He's promised to, 
in, the, in those ways. I can't say that God can't, because he, he can, but I just don't know of any other way that he does. Let me give you an example, though, that might be of, a comfort, of comfort to you. Uh, a friend of mine who is in ministry um, in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities, he had a very public um, falling out with his church because of a sin that he had kept secret for a long time, but it caught up with him, and then it became public. And the sin that he had been suffering from was alcoholism. Nobody didn't tell anybody at all that he had this issue. And he had it from the time of seminary. He began drinking in seminary uh, in order to help him sleep at night because he would tank up on coffee in order to study, and then he couldn't go back to sleep, so he would, he would you know, drink something hard to make him go to sleep. But that began a habit with him that he kept secret even from his wife, his children. Nobody knew about this. But he was drinking very hard for many years, and it started to affect his health. And so he was having health problems, and he went to the doctor. And the doctor knew exactly. It just didn't take too long. The doctor knew exactly what was wrong. and basically said, you're going to have to go through um, detox. You're going to have to detox. It's going to be a rough ride. It's going to take a few days, and if you don't do this, you're going to die because your health is going downhill. So he had no choice. He was, you know, he was put in medical detox, and that made it public as to what had happened. And, and so his sin be, you know, came to light, and his uh, church basically, you know, they disciplined him, and, and you know, there's a lot to the story. But as a side effect, after he was sober, as a side effect, he had mental issues. He actually... Um, you know, his, his brain wasn't functioning quite properly. And he would go, he would have these psychotic events uh, as, as a result of, you know, these, you know, the two decades of drinking. And um, his wife called me up one, one afternoon and said, Chris, I don't know what to do. He's, he's been sitting on the couch. He hasn't moved for two days. Um, he's got this blank look on his face. What am I going to, I can't get him to acknowledge. What do I do? And I said, I don't know what to do. I said, but can you hold the phone up to his ear? I want to talk to him. And she said, okay. So she put the phone up to his ear. And the only thing I said to Bob is I said, Bob, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And I want you to know that, what, you know, that all of your sin is covered for, by Christ's shed blood on the cross for you. He loves you. He wants you to know that he loves you and that you are his son. You are his child. And that, and that he has not forsaken you. This is all I could say to him. No response. I mean, it's kind of a tough conversation when it's one way, but I do radio for a living, so I'm used to talking to myself. His wife picks up, you know, picks up the phone, and we hang up. She's able, she was able to eventually to get him into a facility to get him cared after. But he calls me a couple weeks later. So Bob calls me a couple weeks later. And he says, hey, Chris, I need to talk to you. Oh, all right, what's up, Bob? And I, said, and I said, asked him how he was doing. He says, I'm doing a lot better. And he said, the reason I'm, I wanted to call you is because you don't know what happened to me. And I said, well, what happened to you? He says, well, I, you, know, you know I had a psychotic event. I said, yeah. He says, and in my psychotic episode, I was seeing things and hearing things. And there was this demonic kind of character who was telling me that Christ will never forgive me, that he doesn't love me, and that, you know, and that I'm going to go to hell and all this kind of stuff. And I was believing it inside of my mind. And he said, but when you talked to me, I remember everything that you said. And literally, it was like somebody was shining a light in the darkness. And at that point, I knew that all of those things, that other 
thing was saying were a lie, and you were speaking the truth, and that was the thing that helped snap me out of it. Wow. I had no idea. I had no idea until several weeks later. The idea is, is that God works through means. If you know somebody who has a medical condition or they have an accident and they end up in a coma, preach the gospel to them. Read God's word to them. Because God works through means. God works through the preaching of the gospel, through the hearing of his word. The idea is is that I can't say any other way that God would work except for by that, but since we know that he does work through his word and he works through the gospel, when you have an opportunity to visit somebody who's not of their right mind, you preach the word to them. Because God's word accomplishes what he sends it out to do. Does that help? Back to Romans. So David said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's all of us. How blessed we are. How blessed we are. So is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's Genesis 15. So then how then was it counted to him? Was it counted before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, there it is singular again, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the purpose and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So you see what's going on there then. Abraham is the father of the faith. 
he believes God, and that belief is credited to him as righteousness. We believe God that he will forgive us our sins, that our sins are atoned for and propitiated by Christ, and God credits that belief as righteousness. And the fun part is is that that belief, even the ability to believe, is given as a gift by God. From beginning to end, salvation is pure gift by grace through faith. This is why the Reformers say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And Abraham is the ultimate example of that. Right? Now we have, if you would, kind of the New Testament interpretive grid for understanding the story of Abraham. And we can now go back into Genesis with these categories, law and gospel, properly distinguished. And we can see how Abraham had faith. He believed God and it's credited to him as righteousness. And we see now then how to interpret it. Chapter 12, Genesis. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Now, here's the wrong way to understand the story. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who kind of misuse this story this way. See, Abraham, he got a special revelation from God for something expect, like wonderful that God was going to do in and through him. And so you're just like Abraham. See, God's going to give you a special revelation, and you too are going to bless the whole world through this thing that God wants to do in and through you. Well, that's true in a way. Really? Well, it is, it, it's only true in the gospel, but see, the thing is, is that that's not the point of this passage at all. So what they do, and this is the wrong way to read this text, you look at how Abraham lived his life in those details, and you're supposed to expect the same pattern to come into your life. Yeah, yeah so when you're 100, and when, you know, hopefully I'm going to be dead by then. But, um, yeah, I don't want to live to 100. It's like... Yeah. Yeah, so the way, the way they do is that they read the Scriptures in such a way that you're supposed to look for patterns in how the, the patriarchs live their lives. You're to expect that same kind of pattern to play out in yours. No, that's, Abraham is a unique character. This is a historical narrative, and he plays a unique function in the Old Testament. So the idea then is, is that if, if the parallel between us and Abraham is defined in the New Testament from Romans and Galatians. He believed God and it's credited to him as righteousness. We believe the promises of God and it's credited to us as righteousness. That's the only legit parallel. Uh, our heart is really the only thing that can match up to Abraham. Correct. Our, our works or whatever he did. Yeah. We can't. So God asks us to, not for our ability, but our available. You could say it that way. And then the thing is, is that... Um, Everything we receive, even our good works, we receive from God. So remember how Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which he prepared. 
in advance for us to do. He puts it in our hearts to do Exactly. So it, it, to say, to make yourself available is a, kind of a sneaky way for you to say, I'm still doing something in order, okay? That's kind of like the wrong way to look at it is, is that and the better way to look at it is, is that you are in Christ and God has prepared good works for you in advance to do. Then comes the kind of the logical question. What's a good work? And this is where a lot of people, they fall on their face. A good work is me saving up and going on a medical missionary journey to Guatemala City. Now, that, that's a good work. Yeah, I, was, I would not deny that that's a good work. But that's kind of like taking good works and looking for that super holy grail kind of good work. How do you know what a good work is? Does the Bible tell us? Yes. Ah. (laughs) The Bible does tell us what a good work is. For instance, here's a good work. Don't murder. He's sitting there going, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. So then who's your neighbor? Okay, well, let's talk about how this plays out. If you're going to care for and love your neighbor, who's your neighbor? Well, those little bundles that they, they give you in the hospital after you've been pregnant, that's your neighbor. They come to you naked and hungry, those little bundles. So caring and feeding and clothing and educating them, that's a good work. And you say, well, how do you know this? Well, because God's Word tells you to, to raise these things. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm trying to think of them as aliens. Anyway, okay. So, who's your neighbor? Your husband, your wife. And see, husbands love your wives. You know that whole part about do not commit adultery? It's not just don't commit adultery. It's love your spouse. In way, you know, honor. Right, right. And then you have this idea about um, honoring your father and mother. That, now, the, you have to think with me for a second here. Is that honoring your father and mother is, a, is more than just honor father and mother because the whole basis of society is based upon families. With the father being the head, and then when families group together and create communities and societies, the fathers are the ones who put elected officials in place, and the fathers are also the ones who are responsible technically for commerce and things like that. So then honoring your father and mother also plays into being a good employee. Right? These are good works. This is really funny. A few years back, I was, um, I was visiting a conference put on by some guys in the Seeker Driven movement, and some pastors who knew who I was they asked if I would go out to dinner with them, you know, because you know, I'm kind of critical of some of the things in the secret driven movement. So we were sitting down at dinner and at Applebee's, and we're having this conversation. And, and so they're talking about the importance of doing good works, and they're thinking that somehow I was against good works. And I said, no, I, I'm, I, I'm a big good works guy. I believe that Christ has created these good works for us to do. And then, so I asked them the question, what a good work was. And they came up with all, you know, volunteering at church and leading Bible studies and stuff like that. It's like, well, those are all good works, but... I mean, those are kind of the lesser ones. And they looked at me like, what? And so then I went on and, you know, show them from Scripture. Love your spouse. Right? Love your children. Be a good employee. One of them looks at me and goes, those can't be good works because you don't even have to be a Christian to do those. <laughs> really? 
Really? Well, the thing is, is that I know their good works because God's word says so. So changing dirty diapers is a good work. Being with your children when they're sick in the middle of the night is a good work. Being there and comforting them when they're crying and things go difficult in their life, that's a good work. Loving your husband, loving your wife, being a good employee, doing well at work. Working as if you're not working for your employer, but you're working for Christ himself. These are all good works. And you sit there and go, they're so common. They're so ordinary. They're so, they're so, they're so biblical. Right? Right? And see, the thing is, is that we often despise the works that God has given us to do. And our sinful nature doesn't want to do those. It wants to invent good works. So I'm going to invent a good work that if I were to spend lots of money going to the promised land and visiting all the holy sites and crossing myself at each of these different places, that that's a good work. <laughs> yeah, that'll spring me out of purgatory, right? That's the, how can this possibly be a good work? Right? How can this possibly be a good work? It's really not benefiting anybody else. Right. Now, I'm going to, let's be a little bit controversial here. Let's apply this to monasticism. Monks. Let's apply it to monks and to, to, uh, and to nuns. People who cloister up and, you know, together in, these, uh, you know, in, the, in a monastery. What are they doing? They're not having children. They're not going and making disciples. They're locking themselves up in these buildings. Why? So that they can earn their salvation. And so here's the thing. What's driving them to go and, you know, to join a monastery or to go into a convent? This belief that somehow taking a monastic vow is a means by which I can then achieve this religious and holy life. But the reality of the situation is, is that Scripture has never said that locking yourself up in a monastery is a good work. Salvation is not earned. It's given as a gift. And the good works that we point to are not the good works of waking up in the middle of the night and praying the offices or whipping ourselves into submission and things like that. The good works we're called to do are in common vocations of husband, of mother, of spouse, of child, of student, as employee. All of these are good works, and we know they're good works because God's Word says so, so clearly. And over and again, our sinful nature despises those things and instead wants to please God on its own and invents good works. Yeah. I think the distinction is that um, the good works we invent are always for ourselves. Yep. The works God has given us they're, for everyone else. Exactly. That is, a, that is a perfect way to think about it. In fact, it's as if God really has designed society in such a way that it works perfectly when everybody is selflessly helping another person. What's the scripture? Don't let the left hand know. Different context. Different context. It's talking about giving and things like that, and so that you're so that you you don't want to give in such a way that other people are seeing what you're doing. Okay. And uh, what what would people say works necessary say about? People who are unable to do good works. Mm. Now, this is a good question. What about the person who can't do good works? You're looking at it wrong. When I visit people in the hospital, for instance, when I was um, uh, visiting our, our, our good friend who just passed away, 
right? Judy Stangren. One of the conversations I had with her had to do with the fact that she felt so useless because she was in a bed. And here's what I told her. I said, oh, no, you're not useless at all. You are now in the vocation of patient. And I want you to understand something. These nurses who are caring for you and these doctors that are caring for you, without you being here, they'd have no one to serve. Sometimes the vocation that you're in is the vocation of receiving someone's good works. And that's the only thing you can do. And that is a good work. Right? There was um, one of the little boys that I helped take care of at school was a, uh, couldn't talk, couldn't walk, anything, but walked down the hall, and if I said something to him, he was being wheeled down the hall. He started to laugh and giggle. Made my day yeah. complete. Yeah. So basically, that's it. He was giving. Yes. And not understanding that he was. Right. Did understand what he was. But he was giving so much in that he just made your life shine. Right. So the idea is, is that we give to others and we receive from others. It's, and, and the receiving allows other people to do their good works. And your need oftentimes creates the opportunity for your neighbor to step up and to help you. And it's not a sign of weakness, nor is it a sign that you are selfish when you are truly in need and you are being cared for by others. You're now just in a different vocation. There's a gentleman who listened to my radio program, and he ended up committing a crime, and he's, he's in a federal prison for the next 10 years. And I had an opportunity to talk to him before he went into prison. And, um, and now I'm, we're writing each other, you know, letters back and forth. But, you know, he, he felt so shamed because he had to go to prison. And, and what I told him was this. I said, listen, I want you to understand something. That prisoner is a godly vocation. And I want you to think of it as a vocation. Right. He's now in the vocation of prisoner. And that's a vocation established in our society by which somebody can pay a debt back to society that they owe. It is a godly vocation. And I said, and Joseph himself was 12 years as a prisoner. And he loved and served his neighbor even as a prisoner. So despite the fact that you're going to spend the next 10 years in a federal penitentiary, you are now in the vocation of prisoner and be the best one be the best prisoner you can. Your warden is not the warden. Your warden is Christ. Almost sounds like committing the sin was a good work because it led to the- no, no. This committing the sin was a sin. It doesn't. Okay, it doesn't make it sin. It does not to justify the sin. And see, this is the other thing: is is that second table of the law because God has created the two kingdoms, the church. And the government, the government's job it has been given the sword to punish evildoers in order to keep society from breaking into anarchy. So when somebody breaks certain portions of the second table, that will lead to the government exercising the power of the sword and inflicting temporal punishment on a person. Okay? When a person comes under the government's temporal punishment, the government's doing its job. And when a person is sent to prison, it doesn't justify their work as if somehow that makes that it turns into a good thing. But the idea then is that person changes vocations from full-blown citizen to prisoner. And as a prisoner, that is a vocation that they can still serve their neighbor in. 
Isn't it a lot of times when you go to prisons, uh, people say, I didn't do the crime, was it me? Yeah, the, the, yeah that, the, somebody like that needs to actually fess up and just and get real, but that's a different story. Now, we're, we're, we're going to end here because we're, we're running a little late, but we'll pick this up next week. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.